When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret, it's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Baer. Is believing in absolute free speech a bit like believing in Santa Claus? Today I will be joined by Professor Carolyn Rouse of Princeton University. She's an anthropologist and a filmmaker and the chair of the Department of Anthropology at Princeton University. Professor Rouse is the author of several books, including Engaged Surrender, African-American Women and Islam, Uncertain Suffering, Racial Healthcare Disparities and Sickle Cell Disease, and forthcoming Development Hubris, Adventures Trying to Save the World. She will join me today to talk about free speech, academic culture, trigger warnings, safe spaces, and other related subjects. Welcome. I'm really pleased to welcome Professor Carolyn Rouse, Chair of Anthropology at Princeton University, an anthropologist with expertise in medical anthropology, visual anthropology, critical race theory, and related things. And Carolyn, first of all, thank you for being part of Unmuted, a podcast on free speech and attendant issues. So it's really great to talk to you today. We're talking on the phone. You're in Princeton. I'm in New York right now. So welcome, first of all. But I'm trying to do in this podcast is have conversations about the speech issues related to higher education universities. As we all know, there have been a good number of controversies, maybe occasions for learning in some cases, maybe sometimes not. And I would be curious or interested in how you think about this in the larger context, how you've come to think about this and as a university professor, maybe, or also somebody who's interested in how people make sense of the world in general as an anthropologist? I do look at it from the perspective of an anthropologist. So there's no evidence that there's ever been a society that has been successful where there's absolutist free speech for reasons that I think you are well aware of. And so... When I hear people talk about it, for instance, political theorists or philosophers with kind of universalized theories of free speech that come from the Enlightenment, it's an ideal. I often use the example of believing in Santa Claus. So kids believe in Santa Claus, and as a result of those beliefs, you, you're, you know, as a child, you clean your room because you want presents and you don't hit your little brother and you start doing your homework. And as a result, your friends like to come over to your house because you're 
room doesn't smell like dirty socks anymore. And your mom's much nicer to you because you're not hitting your little brother. And, and you find out that kids who in school who do their homework on time have all these rewards. And so, and then at the end of the year, you get these presents. And so Santa Claus seems real, right? Because of the things you did, you produce a set of experiences that made life better. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, you wind up with these rewards. And free speech is sort of the same way. You know, we, we want to believe in it like we want to believe in Santa Claus. And as a result, we, we create laws around trying to protect it. And we try to have all these conversations that protect it and all sorts of things related to it that produce a feeling as if we live, live in a country of, you know, kind of absolutist free speech. But there's no free speech, actually, in the same way that there's no Santa Claus. Okay, it's a structuring belief Saying in the Santa Claus example, with some good results, some people behave better as long as you're the mom or the dad and thinking, okay, they're cleaning up their room now or they're, right, they're getting up on time and all that. So there's some, it's a structuring belief that has some positive benefits, but you're also saying it's a fantasy as much as a reality. Absolutely. We can't go around, you know, with our id yeah. <laughs> in place of our superego and thinking that people can understand us. It's very difficult. Language is very complicated. Well, I don't know how fast we want to go in this. I was about to use the example of Larry Rosen, my colleague. Okay, so if you can give us a bit of context. I know the example, but for our listeners, maybe, what happened there? So my brilliant and lovely former MacArthur-winning, Genius Grant-winning colleague who is a JD in, in, in law and a PhD in anthropology and teaches at Columbia Law School has for three, four decades done this wonderful thing in the classroom where he asks the students, if a white man went up to a black man and hit him in the face, would it be worse or better than, than saying the N-word to the black man? And he uses the word, right? He says the word. Okay. And it's always hit his students like, wow, a word can have more power than a physical act. And so for 30 to 40 years, students have looked at Larry Rosen as this brilliant, wise, and I'm, and I'm even going to use ethnicity, wise, elderly, Jewish, intellectual, which was a thing, a type, Right. And most people who came into the academy were from a certain demographic. They were from wealthy, often educated families. And so they knew this type of scholar. And so Larry is presenting this example this year, like he has done for decades. And the students cannot separate him as a person from him as a teacher trying to provoke a response to elicit a type of learning. Mm -hmm. And that's an example of how the context of the classroom, you don't even think about how classrooms are context in which speech is understood through culture, through history, through all sorts of things to a point where students can feel as though they are learning something and this something is relevant to their lives and to their future careers. Mm -hmm. And so the complexity of even the context of the classroom and understandings of what we're learning in speech and language are already fraught. As Princeton is opening up to more students who are from low-income and first-generation backgrounds, that legibility is not going to be there. So we're going to have to do a lot more to even make 
our classrooms legible so that students feel comfortable learning and yeah. even understand what we're doing. Right? And and what learning is and what is the what an example is supposed to do and exactly. a specific example. So that's interesting. So you say so someone has used the same example for 30, 40 years maybe. Tell, tell me again precisely the point of the example was to teach what I'm, I'm trying to follow exactly what he's trying to do. And then you're saying, you're saying it's changed now. It's a course on free speech, blasphemy, and mm -hmm. pornography. Mm -hmm. So as an anthropologist, you know, he understands law as not this kind of scientific cultural process, but one that's very much embedded in culture. And so how do you get students to think about hate speech? What is an act of hate speech? What does it do for you yeah. at the level of taboos and visceral responses? And so he brings it into the classroom. The larger context is that you say the demographic or the way an elite institution, any university actually in this country, is enrolling different types of students. Or maybe the students are expecting something else. I'm interested to think whether you think the students are bringing an expectation or their own learning or their own background and saying, this is how we approach this. This is how we hear this versus... Absolutely. And I think that we as faculty have to adapt. I, you know, I have adapted to what people are calling trigger warnings. And I've done that by translating that idea of trigger warnings into this question about framing, which is something that postmodern theorists were trying to understand, right? So as an African-American, and as an African-American, I went to school during a time where history textbooks were quite racist, and I had to somehow make sense of that racism as not fact-based, but as a form of framing. So it was something I had to do, and postmodern scholars have have really gotten us to think about how knowledge is situated. Okay. And so if knowledge is situated, then a trigger warning is, is just another way of situating that knowledge. And I, you know, I think of like R ratings, PG ratings. Right. That's, you know, we go to movies expecting a certain level of whatever. So that's part of the trigger warning. But also, why not alert our students to not only what some of the, the material is going to elicit in terms of conversation, but also in terms of thinking about like, okay, how are we going to talk to each other about this? There's a, a wonderful professor here at Princeton who, who teaches courses on Israeli and Palestinian literature. And throughout her syllabus, she talks about how people are, can talk about and to each other about this material. Otherwise, it's, you know, going to be a... It's, powder cake. And that's interesting. And otherwise, the, an assumption would have been maybe a while back that otherwise people who are excluded by the text or in some ways really not addressed, or as you're saying, if it's a history text that is, includes racist arguments, sort of pseudoscience or something like that, how do you read that if you're part of the group that's being framed there? So this teacher is basically providing the instructions of how to read the material and how to talk about it so everybody can stay in the conversation. Right. So, so the framing part, when you said what framing is, framing is means becoming aware that knowledge is context-based, that it's structured in certain ways, and that people are situated in relation to it in different ways. So they're positioned in different ways. It's interesting. I've, I've actually never 
I don't think I've seen a trigger warning. I've seen one trigger warning, so to speak, on one syllabus where someone said some of this material may be upsetting to some people. So just be aware. And if you would choose rather to cease to watch something else or not do it, no problem. It actually didn't end civilization or even that class. <laughs> and the framing part, I'm trying to pull that out, is something that seems to happen all the time in every class if it's a well-taught class. But what you said, you had to do that practice as a student. So it wasn't given to you. The teachers weren't coming in saying, here's the book. By the way, be aware of how this is being positioned and how to approach that. Do you think the students are coming in now and challenging teachers to say, you have to actually be cognizant of this, of this fact that this is context-based information or knowledge, which will play out differently for different people. Yeah, and I, I'm not going to label these kids a group or anything as a phenomena or a crisis, right? None of that stuff. But in my conversations with the students after this thing with Larry happened to, you know, a colleague I adore... So t um, tell us again how this played out. So this didn't. So the students were. So the students, some of them left. One left and then came back and got right up to his face and said, "You know, fuck you," really loudly and wow. aggressively. And and people just want him to apologize. And he got, you know, he's also historically he's been award-winning professor. He's never experienced any kind of hardship as a professor. People. You know, the, he's experienced, I'm, I'm going to put in this sort of white male privilege in the classroom of people seeing him as the sage on the stage and giving him lots of space. So he's never confronted the kinds of challenges that people like me have experienced by students who are like, do you even have a PhD? You know, that kind of thing. Right? Okay, right. So he's never had any. So he got a little tone deaf. Mm -hmm. He got stuck. He didn't know how to respond to anyone challenging him because he's never really been challenged. So he recognizes that he didn't know what to do. And this is, you know, at the end of the day, I let people, I let the students know this isn't a conversation, a national conversation. This is a Princeton conversation. So, you know, we had a lunch. I had a follow-up lunch with a couple of the students. They're wonderful, right? But, you know, I, I let them know that, like, in the past, so I was I was given Charles Murray's Losing Ground to Read in college, which is part of the reason why I chose my profession. Really? Because I, because I read the book and I'm like, wow, I don't know any African-Americans who fit this, but, but maybe, like, I, maybe it's just my own limited knowledge, so I better learn. Right. Okay. More. There's a positive effect of a Charles Murray book. Okay. You yeah. went into anthropology. Good. I went into anthropology. <laughs> right. And so I tell my students, like, this isn't the end of the story. You're supposed to say, oh my God, I could do this better. Let me get my PhD and enter the academy and challenge it. Right. Not let me take this professor down right. publicly and shame this person because it's not, it's much more nuanced than that. And I said, they're feeding into the hands of the forces that want to defund public education right. and, and destroy higher education. So they should really be careful about how, you know, they present this in public. And, and when you talk to the students over lunch and afterwards and you processed, I mean, mm -hmm. they're enrolled students, so they found something was really not, it wasn't working for them. The way he presented this example and pronounced the N-word, that was not working for them. And It wasn't. And was he struck by saying, this has never happened, I'm surprised, this is... A new mindset, a new generation. I know you said, rightly, they're not one group, but... Yeah, he got stuck. 
It's interesting. You know, bless his heart. He's been struggling for the past two or three months to really try to understand it. Where the rest of us have moved on, he doesn't realize that's, you know, the loose cycle is about, you know, what, 15 minutes. He's really trying to make sense of it. And I think he's learning a lot about how students have changed and how the expectations have changed. A lot of the students, most of the students wanted the class to continue. They said the first 30 minutes, of course, were brilliant, right? And even with those struggles, they wanted to know more. And in my little response to the incident, I mentioned the example of the baker in Indiana who doesn't want to bake cakes for gay couples. And I, that's sort of where the class was taking them. And you, you have to understand how complex this is. And now that the case has been decided, you know, you, you understand, like, there's so many more layers to right. this question of free speech right. than, you know, this absolutist uh, right. notion right. of free speech. So they learned something in a way. It's such a concrete example of where... Where what you're saying, this absolute idea that anybody can say anything. The classroom is a specific context with specific purposes, and sort of we're trying to get people to stay engaged. If the if the language makes that impossible, even if there was a free speech rule in the classroom, which doesn't apply in any case, it's not productive. And what you're saying, the professor is grappling with trying to understand. I am interested that the students have a way that, what you said, it's a Princeton issue, but that it becomes a national issue very quickly. Do you think that does something to this? You know, that st the nation's attention is on one incident, one word literally said in a quiet classroom in, you know, the sylvan groves of Princeton academia, <laughs> and suddenly the entire country is talking about it. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I was st struck by the responses, you know, before I even knew you, right? right? I was struck by the responses to your New York Times op-ed. Which I have to confess, I was a bit naive. I was actually struck by the responses, too. I thought I was writing a reasonable piece, which I still believe was reasonable. <laughs> and, you know, the fact that people can't see, you know, I think one of your images was of two sides, you know, people saying the Spencer guy shouldn't speak and the other saying he should speak. And somehow the free speech of the people saying he shouldn't speak somehow didn't matter, right? And that was fascinating. You know, the inability for people to understand the relationships between power and their own subjectivity and points of view is really fascinating. And the social media and, and this nationalization of these conversations is so pernicious because people do, they feel like they have to choose sides right. without knowing anything really about the context. I remember that incident at Evergreen State. Yes. And I remember, you know, watching some of the video of some of the things that were happening. And I think the video was meant to mock some of the people, but the conversations and discourses, the mission statement of the university, there's a whole constellation of histories and discourses and debates that are specific to Evergreen State. And, right. you know, and here you have national op-ed writers like Frank Bruni thinking that he knows right. something and he can sit, make these sort of grandiose statements, which really have nothing to do with what's going on at that, at that location. Right. I think they feed into another conversation you mentioned a bit earlier when you said they actually are part of the nation's conversation about higher education and what's the role of universities and the right of universities to set their terms of how this is a specific world, a specific culture, specific rules. People jump in and say, you should be running it like this. And universities, as you're saying, especially in a classroom or even on a campus, 
This is how we do things because we have an objective, a mission, for people to be in an equal environment where everybody can learn and coming from, you know, even coming from different positions, they have the same opportunities to learn and participate. Right, right. Absolutely. And I'm very much in the camp of Joan Scott and Post about what academic freedom is relative to free speech. And those are different things. And they're about expertise. And as an anthropologist, I use the example of Sally Falk Moore's semi-autonomous social fields as a way to theorize. And I've done work in different institutions around race and inequality. That's been my research. And it's really important to, for all of us to recognize that there are no semi-autonomous social fields like law, like medicine, like religion. Can you where b- there's, break down uh-huh. for me a moment semi-autonomous social field would be, if you explain that in a, right. another so, way? So a semi-autonomous social field is something like law or medicine right. or religion or a university that has rules of evidence, procedures, right, ways of sanctioning people. And they do it based upon agreed upon ideas of facts and evidence and truth and value and meaning and purpose. So I can't go into a courtroom and just start monologuing. Right. Right. And the judges can shut me down. They, the judge can even imprison me. Right. With, without, um, without you being able to bring in another value from another field and saying, but this is my right as a citizen or something like that or invoking the First Amendment. So you're saying a semi-autonomous. You can't even, but you can't even do that in a, in a court <laughs> right, of law. Right. Right. You can't. Right. There's just, right. right. There are procedures. There's authority. Yeah. In medicine, I, you know, I worked for, I continue to work on health and racial health disparities. And I did field work in hospitals for years. Doctors are not allowed to say anything they want. They're licensed. They're professionals. And if they tell somebody to do something based on an opinion and not based upon what they consider robust forms of evidence, uh, they could be sued if something goes haywire. And they can lose their license. So, for example, no doctor can say, it's my First Amendment right to just tell you whatever I want. If you give a wrong diagnosis deliberately, you can say, you're liable for your speech and you cannot just invoke some other principle there. Mm. Absolutely. And in the university, and, and this is what Scott and Post are emphasizing, which is, you know, we, for good or bad, we were trained and the training required us to be knowledgeable about the history of our disciplines and to be tested on that because in order to challenge and add to that discipline, you need to know the past. It's dialogic. It's not monologic. You know, academia is dialogic. And I have to emphasize that again, because when we think about provocateurs, they're monologists. They're just coming in and saying whatever they want, built on no prior knowledge, no engagement with prior theories. And that's what just distinguishes our form of expertise. And, that, and, I, and I say it in that way because, yeah, sometimes people who are quote-unquote experts are thinkers who, shall we say, their, their ideas don't stand the test of time. Right. And we have to put up with that. But we, we allow that kind of academic freedom if it's within bounds. You know, it's not sort of a sideways thing that you, you know, you're not an expert in, but you use your academic freedom to start making other kinds of claims. But if you're within your discipline, 
you know, that's the kind of academic freedom that we're supporting. It's about expertise. It's about only sanctioning people, you know, when they're not doing something that's related to what the discipline is. This is, I think, very hard for people outside of the academy to understand, because <laughs> if I come in and I would like to give a talk in the astronomy department, they wouldn't invite me because I don't have any training. I, I know a lot of things about the stars. I can claim all that. Somehow they wouldn't, they would say no. Or the, the history of German astronomy. <laughs> I'm sure I would figure something out exactly, or I could. And I have no expertise, and they would turn me down, and I couldn't call on First Amendment privileges and somehow say my right to speak has been abridged. This is mm -hmm. strange and maybe not strange, because you mentioned power earlier, that the controversies we see, in my view, when I look at the country, tend to always be about race. There's, when there's a controversy, it's about race and it's about power and equality. And it's not, we don't have a lot of cases where some armchair astronomer sues on First Amendment grounds to give a lecture at a planetarium. That's just not in the press. So this debate gets, when, what you just said about academic expertise seems reasonable, seems, as in medicine or law and other fields, completely justified. But somehow the university has opened itself up or has been opened up to these incursions, and they're almost always about race and equality, I think. And it's interesting to me that people then focus on it in the op-ed pages and get really worked up without ever talking about what is really being addressed. And it becomes a bit of an abstract discussion of it's a free speech right versus censorship. While this never happens in the sciences, really. I mean, you don't have those cases. You have a few cases occasionally with creationists or things like that, but it's not really that pervasive. So I, I would be interested if you could talk a little bit about what you said earlier. It's about power and who has power in the classroom or not. The incident you mentioned, professor has enormous authority, and the, student, the students took it upon themselves to say, we also have some authority. We can actually challenge something. We participate in this community. And I think instead of running from that as professors or saying, you know, when I was a kid, things were better, that kind of <laughs> nonsense, I think we need to embrace it. And it's a certain type of energy. It's a lot of these kids want to be, you know, public intellectuals eventually. So it's about trying to get them to recognize that they need to slow down. You know, I think one of the worst parts about our media ecology at this point is this need for speed and that academia is about the long durée. It's about taking your time to really develop the evidence in order to make your claims. So going back to the Larry incident, Larry asked the students if any of them would like to wipe their feet on the American flag. And the students, this is before the N-word, right? Right. The students willingly did this. Okay. In some places, yeah. that would have been the thing yes. that caused the students to rise up. It actually <laughs> made me think for a moment, did he bring a flag into the classroom? I would yes. Be he did. He literally I'm, did it. I'm kind of speechless. Okay, I'm, as a, as a like proud naturalized citizen, I think really people did this. Yes. So okay. so, but they didn't see. They didn't really get that. Just you know, this is you. You you have right. this relationship to this word. Right. Right. But but you have to understand, other people have a relationship to gay marriage and right. the same or the same relationship to the flag. Right. 
And he couldn't get the kids to slow down and realize because, as you said, race is the third rail, right? Yeah. It's always the thing. But there are lots of other things that people have. And as anthropologists, you know, there's women in Minarch who touch the wrong item, the sacred item, right? They right. could be, right, defiling and horrific. The first thing is to, to get them to pull away from, I think, mainstream ways of thinking. And, and that's becoming harder and harder to do because you're supposed to now identify with camps. I don't even know if a tweet is language or an icon or a signifier at this point. Right. Right. It's it's and you're supposed to respond immediately. You're supposed to know right away how to respond. Right. As opposed to taking your time, which is what academics do. Well, let's go back and think more about who wrote the tweet, the specific things referenced in the tweet. What are the histories of those? Right. So there's a whole methodology that we have to get our students to like, okay, you have these emotions associated with things. Let's break these apart and figure out where they come from and then reanalyze them and come up with something new. But we're having a hard time at this point getting students to not react in this very, very rapid way. It's interesting as an anthropologist that you just brought up this, the tweet has a kind of totemic role because you can retweet. So you have tens or hundreds of thousands of people all marking, we also handled this object or we endorse it or we want to touch it for a moment and then we're part of a group. And it's an interesting, what you said earlier, so the flag, gay marriage, the N-word, people have very strong responses. And in a classroom to learn that those responses determine much of our behavior. That's actually quite interesting to say this, your response is motivated not by thinking about it maybe, but even by the way you've been trained or educated or conditioned. Absolutely. And what really worries me is the students, because our pre-read is a book on free speech. This is for your summer reading? For Yeah, the freshman class was asked to read a book on, which really... Absolute free speech America. Absolutely. Birthright. Yes, bedrock principle, right. Yeah, and so we're worried that students are going to, A, you know, come in here and think that that there are are things called conservatives and there are things called liberals. And either you're conservative or a liberal, and therefore when you're in the classroom, your ideas are either in camp A or camp B. Mm -hmm. All of my colleagues, none of us teach, I shouldn't say that, in politics I think they do because in politics they're talking about these things. But some people would say that I am, you know, right wing when I talk about things like, you know, how groups identify, because what we know about group identity, what we call common pool resource use and the ways in which they're managed is, you know, speaks to why it's very important for people who cross the border to be identified as part of the group. Yeah. And this isn't saying anything about building a wall. This isn't <laughs> saying anything about, but it's noting that the imagined fears that people have are because they don't know who these people are in relationship to them, each other, right. which is part of the history of how common pool resources have been managed by communities since the beginning. So, so this isn't a conservative or, but or so liberal you, point of view. Right? But you, you could seem to be giving fodder to these people who think everybody is tribal, there are groups, it's natural, it's human to, to divide and segregate and all that. So interesting. So your argument could be turned into something else if you're only assigning people to camp. So you're like, you're conservative suddenly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Also, I tell my students, as an anthropologist, I just don't believe in human rights as a thing. I, you know, the earth was 
born and great explosions and years of burning and we came through the soup of, you know right. and so any right we create is a product of a struggle of a struggle of discourse of divisions of schisms of bringing people back together making sense ethical discourses and that's what I say about this free speech stuff is that all of it, all of the ways in which we are allowed to speak to one another and the kinds of things that are going on, these movement, these shifts and what's considered appropriate or not appropriate. It's just it's we have to walk through this fire always. It's never going to be, a, a, you know, we're going to create a formula. and We're just going to. Okay, stick to this formula and everything's going to be great. I was right. just watching a video, of ACLU, big free speech person, yeah. and I. I just I don't know what there's no history where it's just so simple where we just allow free speech and they always go back to, you know, African-American in the 1960s, which just drives me crazy because, oh, you know, we didn't allow them to speak on college campuses. It's like that is not the way by which African-Americans gain their rights in the United States. That's a good by point. By speaking on college campuses. That's a good point. It's actually really interesting you say that because there's a slew of books saying, you know, we should be so grateful to the First Amendment because it ushered in the civil rights movement. Actually, the civil rights movement never used a speech case. They always fought for equality. They said speech is not our big issue. They didn't sue universities for being able to give a lecture. That was not no. the mode. And it's a weird retroactive revisioning and thinking the First Amendment was the thing that brought about Full equality? No, it was the civil rights lawyers and activists and people in the streets fighting for equality, mm -hmm. not mm -hmm. for speech rights, actually, which is yes. kind of interesting. And I've actually said this to the, the ACLU person you mentioned, said if there was as much passion for the 14th Amendment as for the first in this country, I would like to see that. I would like to see newspaper editorialists, the Frank Brunies, be as angry that the 14th Amendment isn't adhered to all the time everywhere in this country, which would be equality, which is also a legally mandated guarantee in higher education, that equality and equal treatment is, is actually legally mandated for universities through complicated things, but free speech isn't mandated for private universities. So I find it interesting that the First Amendment is being brought into it in some ways to, to put it in competition with equality or to put it in conflict, which I think it's, it has to be related. But it's interesting. What do you think should be a common book students could read? I've, I mean, it's, for me, I think I should read an anthropology book of how to make sense of uh, how we make sense of the world. Yeah, <laughs> of lang yeah, language and speech. And how about Phil Broth's Human Stain, you know? Interesting. Yes. <laughs> There would be a real example, actually, of what... Yeah, of how complicated this is. Yeah. You know, of a, a man who's trying to pass, who doesn't really know the student, and this is just an incident, and he's caught off guard, and his life is ruined. You right. know? There are novels. We don't have to... Novels would open it up to things that aren't as tangible in the mainstream press, news, social media and would give students a license to say whatever, right? Because none of these people are real, right? This right. isn't a real incident. Right. You know, this is where humanities are important, right? Yeah, interesting. I would, I would say make it a novel. Yeah, I think so too. I giving students, 18-year-olds, a philosophical argument can be good, but the novel could open up the other side in a way without having to take a side on it, saying yeah. there's the character and he's negotiating his life having to compromise in some areas and being outed by co accident or coincidence. It's mm -hmm. interesting. 
where did the students end up after this spring? First of all, it must have been strange. Was it strange for you or hard for you to talk to them afterwards, after this whole incident in the classroom? How are they? What's your sense I, of the, I, the ones you talk to, not the yeah. whole generation? <laughs> well, you know, they're struggling to understand this. They're wonderful. You know, one of them actually chose this as, as a major. Oh, um, so. Yeah, I mean, yeah. There's a lot going on, just not necessarily related to this. But I think, I'm thinking about the humanities. So anthropology is a social science. Ten years ago, maybe 20, there was this sort of movement to do randomized control trials around social science. And this idea that you could nudge people and you could create the perfect society by nudging and that there were these people who knew what was rational and what wasn't. And those were the people who would design this, the research to study how to nudge people to be more rational. And you've, you've seen this, right? Yes. Behavioral economics, behavioral yes. psychology. And I think people are realizing that with the Trump election, that we aren't as rational as we thought we were, <laughs> which is something that anthropologists have been saying for a long time. And and maybe it, it, it does make sense to, to study a more humanistic science like anthropology right. because, you know, we, we talk about things like there's no one way in which to do free speech. Mm -hmm. There are multiple ways in which a society can try to create a space in which people feel secure um, and comfortable and as if they're creating real knowledge around real things that that represents their values. I was in Norway in March when there was a dust up with the minister of justice who had posted a racist tweet um, about immigrants and there were calls for her to step down. And, and it was around the labor party, which were the people who were the victims of Utoya, the man who oh, yes. was part of the progress party who shot up all of these people on the island of Utoya. And so I, you know, I, I came into this, I was speaking to a center against racism and also to the University of Oslo, and they wound up asking me to speak about free speech as well, because as she was leaving, after she was finally forced to resign, oh. after she got a room full of flowers by Nazis, wow. people were calling them Nazi flowers, which oh. anyway, it was a, it was a really interesting desktop. And it was interesting because I had been reading the work of other scholars in Norway about their struggles. I mean, in, in many ways, they were well ahead of us. They were dealing with Trump-like nationalist you know, discourses well ahead of us. And they were already thinking about, you know, why absolutist free speech around social media like Facebook, it shouldn't necessarily even be a real thing. And it was interesting because their notions of free speech, well, they're committed in many ways, in the same ways. Amer they're different. You're very you know, different. They, they're very different. And I think, you know, this is a time for us. I think this podcast is lovely because I think it is a time for us to think that, again, in this kind of humanistic anthropological way, like there's not one right way to do this. Right. right? There's, there are many good ways in which we can protect people's rights to have different opinions and try to present unorthodox opinions at the same time that we're protecting expertise and civility. Right, and I think there's different ways of doing it in different countries, as you could see in Norway probably approaches it differently. In this country, we handled it differently 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 40 years ago. And I think 
the Supreme Court decisions and the legal context shapes much of public conversation, but doesn't entirely determine it. And I think what I found surprising, and this is part of why I'm doing these podcasts, is that when you start to want to think about it, which is what the university is presumably supposed to do, people want to shut this entire conversation down and say, we know what free speech is. It's absolute. It's this one thing. Although it was very different 10 years ago, it's going to be very different. It's even changing right now with different decisions in the court this term. But this kind of reluctance to reflect on who we are. And I think what maybe in this Trump presidency, people are taking stock of who we are and what our real values are, rather than just saying, this is going to be defending some group of people and hurting another group, and it's good this way. So I found the students kind of good that they're raising a question and saying, this seems to only benefit one group right now. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, kind of going back to the example of civil rights and how people want to make this claim, Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896, which the Supreme Court allowed segregation. Right. And Justice Brown wrote in the opinion that basically legal rights and social rights are two different things. We can give you legal rights, but that doesn't guarantee social rights. Interesting. And it was a horrible decision, right? But he's right, right? It took another hundred plus years, <laughs> right. right, to get to For where his... we are today, which isn't very far, right? But, right? but it took so long to get to the point of civil rights, even after the 13th and 14th Amendments, right? right? Law is mostly for the wealthy in this country, right? It doesn't work so well for people who don't have power. I'm doing work in, around declining white life expectancies in rural California and sort of Trump land. And policing is totally corrupt in a lot of these white rural communities. And we talk about bad policing in urban, black urban neighborhoods, but there's bad policing in poor white communities as well, right? So yeah, law has never really worked all that well for people on the outside. The way in which they fought for their rights has been through discourse, mm -hmm. through redemptive narratives, religion, mm -hmm. all sorts of other way, art, right. theater, movies that humanized right. gay people and disabled people and black people. So that's part of what we're also protecting with academic freedom is the, the freedom to push back against some of the dehumanizing legislations and laws out there to not just hold up all of these precepts. We can't challenge them or think of them in relationship to one another. Like you said, shouldn't we be talking more about the 14th Amendment than the First Amendment sometimes, right? Yeah, right. And it shouldn't be a competition, as I, as I, I hasten to point out. I think they are interlinked. I think free speech without equality is not just pointless, but actually is probably dangerous to a democracy. If there's not, if it's not given equally, if only some people have free speech, it's, I think it becomes a real problem. So what about guns? Uh, the same, <laughs> the, the same debate and conversation. And as we know, in the 1940s, 50s and 60s, you couldn't have certain types of guns at home. And then mm -hmm. the court and a lobby reinterpreted the entire idea of what a, what a well-armed militia is. Mm -hmm. And suddenly you could, I think people are starting, and I think the students are really good at this, starting to see that. There are contradictions and there is hypocrisy in these debates that somehow people invoke one right for themselves and then say, but you can't have that right. So it's really 
It's interesting. Carolyn, I want to thank you so much for participating in this. It's really, really great. And to hear an anthropologist weighing in is really from your perspective how we have to think more about how knowledge is context-based and changes according to people, sort of how they participate in these kinds of semi-autonomous realms. It's, it's really great. It's, a, it's been a great conversation. Thank you. Th thanks. And <laughs> okay. thanks for your interventions. Okay. Thank you very much. Okay. Take care. Thanks. Take care. Bye.